Game Cool Books, Episode 18. You want to see proof. Welcome back. This is Wesley Schantz to our Game Cool Books Golden Compass series. Fencing is a good bit longer than the previous chapter, but the fencing itself only takes up a small part of it. Like The Lost Boy, its title is a direct reference to a prior text. And like that chapter, this one is organized into three main scenes. Lyra with Tony, Lyra with Yorick, and Lyra with Lee. And loosely corresponding to these are three important ideas we'll see Lyra have, more or less the way a writer has an idea. We'll even see her writing for the first time since that list of guests for the party. Before the chapter break, Lyra's able to tell right away what's happened to Tony and the narrator spells it out for us in a number of resonant ways. It's a pivotal moment when one of the book's great mysteries is revealed, what the gobblers do to the children they kidnap. It's a shock, reverberating through the chapter break, and at the start of this chapter we get Lyra's reaction. Pullman writes, Her first impulse was to turn and run, or to be sick. A human being with no demon was like someone without a face, or with their lips laid open and their heart torn out, something unnatural and uncanny that belonged to the world of nightcasts, not the waking world of sense. So Lyra clung to Pantalaimon, and her head swam and her gorge rose, and cold as the night was, a sickly sweat moistened her flesh with something colder still. Accounting for this combination of fear and disgust is the unnatural and uncanny, that phrase we heard from her reading of the alethiometer, suggesting she suspected all along the sort of thing she would find. It's linked in the description here to the stories Tony Costa was telling of the North, and to the night guests that visited Lyra and Jordan, but now she is face to face with them and wide awake. At once the boy is personalized, asking for radar, prompting pans, recognition, and probably our own, as his name Tony Macarios is one she, we should remember from the interlude in chapter 3. Oh, it's Lyra who recognizes what, she, what he means, of course. Um, and like Pan, before the door was opened, Lyra can't speak now. I don't know, she began, and swallowed hard to govern her nausea. The gobblers... But she couldn't finish. She had to go out of the shed and sit down by herself in the snow. Except that, of course, she wasn't by herself. She was never by herself, because Pantalaimon was always there. Oh, to be cut from him as this little boy had been parted from his ratter. The worst thing in the world. She found herself sobbing. And Pantalaimon was whimpering, too, and in both of them there was a passionate pity and sorrow for the half-boy. Then she got to her feet again. She recognizes her connection to Pan. The narrator repeats it wonderingly as it runs through her mind that she's never by herself. She's never been aware of their relationship in quite this way before. And not so much mastering as feeling her feelings to the bottom, to the bedrock of her connection to Pan, and moving beyond the fear and disgust, she puts herself into Tony's place. She's overcome with passionate pity and sorrow. Emerging from the fish house, he brings his dried fish with him. As if to fix this in our mind, the narrator emphasizes how pitiful he is in this view of him in the second-hand gear 
in moonlight. The petty demand for payment elicits another snap reaction, which Lyra has to resist. Rather than having Yorick kill the lantern bearer, Lyra points out that it's he who owes them for taking the boy. We get a hint of what losing one's demon entails when Tony shows no surprise at the bear. Something approaching pity comes from Yorick in his remark, My armor weighs far more than children. Pan's impulse to pity, to comfort Tony, is prevented, as we're told, by the great taboo. Which may make us start to question its validity, or at least its grounds, particularly given this new and unprecedented item of data, this person whose demon has been not just touched, but taken. Given the villagers are so relieved to see them simply taking Tony away, and given in some sense she's already gone above and beyond the alethiometer's instructions to find him, it's especially impressive to see what Lyra does next. In Lyra's heart, revulsion struggled with compassion. In compassion won, she put her arms around the skinny little form to hold him safe. The journey back to the main party was colder and harder and darker, but it seemed to pass more quickly for all that. Yorick Bjornesson was tireless, and Lyra's riding became automatic, so that she was never in danger of falling off. The cold body in her arms was so light that in one way he was easy to manage, but he was inert. He sat stiffly without moving as the bear moved, so in another way he was difficult too. Like Yorick, her pity is expressed in terms of remarks on Tony's lightness, his frailty, and she notices how he repeatedly asks for his demon, yet has no attention to spare for anything else, how he sits clumsily inert without riding the bear, which quickly becomes automatic for Lyra. And we should think about all the overtones of that from the previous chapter. She reassures Tony with the kindest thing to say of all, though he doesn't notice anything strange about her formulation. Is she, I says, is she going to know where I am? Yeah, she'll know. She'll find you and we'll find her. Hold on tight now, Tony. It ain't far from here. Her promise of a mutual finding between the boy and his demon. She doesn't ask the alethiometer and doesn't get a chance to. Like Lyra, the Egyptians can tell immediately that something is wrong. John Fah's exclamation, Gracious God, what is this? Lyra, child, what have you found? It falls with considerable irony. Gracious God. Though the gobblers are acting under the auspices of the church, their behavior would seem to preclude the possibility of such a God. Or at any rate, of his being on their side. Gracious and grace will be crucial concepts to watch for, of course. So far, they've been associated with Miss Coulter, again, ironically, punning on the two senses, the physical and the theological. To belabor a different conspicuous word here, Yorick appeals to the Egyptians' sense of shame when they're slow to come to the aid of the children much as John Fah did at the roping. Several times we see the Egyptians have to reorient their sense of the human to take in not just Lyra 
with both children. Category of someone with no demon is a difficult one to adjust to, admittedly. But Lyra did it by physically embracing the child. Now she's taken aside. In just one more instance of her exceeding expectations, Pan reminds her to tell John Fa about the witches, and she conscientiously does so via Yorick, a messenger. Sticking with Egyptians for just a moment longer, soon they're going to be called bulky ghosts. Um, it's an ominous image, not only foreshadowing perhaps that several of them will soon fall in an ambush, but hinting at the structure of the human in Pullman's story's ontology, which we'll eventually learn contains not just body and demon, but also ghost, spirit. Upon waking, Lyra sees Pan is already up trying out the arctic fox form, which the old lantern bearer had. She's excited to tell Father Quorum that she has understood what the Alethiometer was trying to tell her before, that bird and not meant no demon, after all. But she can tell that something is wrong once more. The Alethiometer kept saying bird and not, and that didn't make sense because it meant no demon, and I didn't see how it could be. What is it? Lyra, I'm afraid to tell you this after what you done, but that little boy died an hour ago. He couldn't settle. He couldn't stay in one place. He kept asking after his demon where she was, was she a-coming soon, and all. And he kept such a tight hold on that bare old piece of fish as if... Oh, I can't speak of a child. But he closed his eyes finally and fell still. And that was the first time he looked peaceful, for he was like any other dead person then, with their demon gone in the course of nature. They'd been a-trying to dig a grave for him, but the earth's bound like iron. So John Fa ordered a fire built, and they're going to cremate him, so as not to have him despoiled by carrion eaters. Remember the word settle for later. And this phrase... Such a tight hold on the fish. Where Father Quorum trails off, can't speak of it. And that the pi, uh, the pathos we've seen associated with Tony Macarius from the start, verging on sentimentality, as Dickens sometimes does, is reinforced once again. Like the story of the navigator with the dolphin demon, and like anyone, as Father Quorum seems to suggest, Tony is finally peaceful in death. He's at peace while for the living, work and care are interminable. Since the earth is frozen, he'll be cremated, burnt, to spare him from desecration by carrion. He goes on reassuring Lyra that what she did was brave and good, and that he's proud of her, expressing his ethical categories in terms of duty, be it ever so small a thing as to eat and get her strength back, or to fuss over the sled traces to do the work, to show the care and respect that they can. But far from feeling morbidly responsible somehow for what's happened, as a more neurotic character might well do, Lyra wishes to see the body out of respect. She's not prevented. Again, death is not the worst that can befall us. At least it's natural, perfectly within the realm of the canny. As she looks, Pressing Pan into her heart, like we saw at the fish house and before. 
That sympathetic image leads her to ask, where was it? She pulled the blanket down. It was gone. She was on her feet in a moment, and her eyes flashed fury at the men nearby. Where's his fish? Where's his fish? The narrator deftly leads up to this explosion, building from the inner voice to the outer shout, and elaborating distinctions between the child and the grown-ups, but also between themselves and their demons. Lyra doesn't know, and wants to know, the answer to her question. The men don't know, and hadn't thought to ask. Their demons do know, as Pan seemed to know before Lyra opened the door, what she would find. Now, now, at the opposite end of the spectrum, from his inarticulate fear and despair, then, Pan takes the form of a snow leopard, just like Lord Asriel's, as the narrator points out, and connects this with fierce insistence on right and wrong. The problem is how to properly show respect before what we don't understand, based on what we think we do. The man took the fish away, thinking it was food, and fed it to the dogs. His demon didn't prevent him, and Lyra wasn't there to stop him. Now, she can't see how reasonable his action was, to the point of withholding her pardon, which he asks, righteously attributing it to the dead, who obviously can't grant it, who, as Father Korm has explained, is past worrying about it. But the fish meant something to him in life, and it certainly means something to Lyra now, as the men can see, too late. Or perhaps not. An idea comes to her. Possibly it comes from the idea of payment making things square. A coin for a fish, a fish for a boy, a fish for a demon. In that claim raised by the old man with the lantern, possibly it comes just from Lyra connecting this dead boy with what she knows of death, what little she knows of death. The narrator keeps us in suspense at first of what her idea is. Then an idea came to her, and she fumbled inside her furs. The cold air struck through as she opened her anorak, but in a few seconds she had what she wanted and took a gold coin from her purse before wrapping herself close again. So, with a gold coin for paper, and the man's knife for a pencil, in many ways this echoes the alethiometer itself, which she reads. Here, she's writing, literally inscribing meaning through a significant image, through the act of writing itself, the devotion it bespeaks, but also in language, in the demon's name. She honors Tony saint of lost things, Makarios, the blessed, with his demon's much humbler name, resembling the sole animal he loved and, and died out of love for. Making up for the loss of the fish, symbolic of Jesus Christ, the ichthys, the fisher of men, but after all, only a bare old piece of dried fish, though it was the best he had, she provides for the lost boy, she says, like a scholar. In each of the three scenes, along with Lyra's ideas that come to her, 
Jordan College will be recalled too. And in two of them, she'll undo her furs, feel the cold striking in, before she gets warm again. Lyra's next idea comes when she hears about the plan to spy from the air. This time, then, we know why she has the idea, or at least what inspires it, but not what the idea is. We see that it's something to do with the spy flight tin, something to do with Yorick, but even after we see what she and Yorick do, uh, the purpose for what they do remains unclear for now. With Lyra, we wonder at Yorick's opposable thumb claws, which allow him to hold things still, a kind of negative capability. We see he also has an innate knowledge of his own. He listened, and then took the lid of a biscuit tin and deftly folded it into a small flat cylinder. She marveled at the skill of his hands. Unlike most bears, he and his kin had opposable thumb claws with which they could hold things still to work on them. And he had some innate sense of the strength and flexibility of metals, which meant that he only had to lift it once or twice, flex it this way and that, and he could run a claw over it in a circle to score it for folding. He did this now folding the sides in and in until they stood in a raised rim and then making a lid to fit it. At Lyra's bidding, he made two, one the same size as the original smoke-leaf tin and another just big enough to contain the tin itself and a quantity of hairs and bits of moss and lichen all packed down tight to smother the noise. When it was closed, it was the same size and shape as the alethiometer. Only later will we be able to put this together with Lyra's anxiety about Mrs. Coulter and the Golden Monkey? Possibly. It's still a stretch, for me at least. It's one of the least plausible of Lyra's moments of prescience, since her deciding to make this uh, decoy lacks even the machinery of the alethiometer to explain it. And then finally getting into conversation with Yorick, Lyra asks him about not having a demon. That connection between loneliness and the cold that was hinted at when she took the coin from her anorak comes up in Yorick's answer, that he does not know either cold or loneliness the way humans do, not experiencing the world as a human. Again, the witches will say something similar later, helping us to triangulate on what the human is by way of these contraries. Arguably, Yorick has felt something like lonely, though, when he had no armor, but he chooses not to speak about this. When she follows up on his claim about not being lonely, because bears are made to be solitary, by asking about the Svalbard bears, Yorick snaps the reindeer meat like wood, much as the fish hanging in the village were described as being stiff as boards. The offense which Lyra can tell she's given is allayed by her begging Yorick's pardon, with the excuse of her curiosity about her father. He doesn't know what might have happened to Lord Azrael, but when he reveals that he was punished for killing another bear, Lyra makes the connection to York being just like her father. As they talk about ways to get to Svalbard, a wild idea, her third, that we have our attention called to in this way, comes to Lyra as she remembers all those witches in the night sky but she said nothing about that. Um, neither she nor the narrator can say anything yet about how this 
uh, this memory connects to balloon flight, but I think the reader can see it more easily, at least in the business with the spy flight in. A lively catalogue of descriptions of Svalbard, reminiscent of our flight down the river to Limehouse, or our journey through the Fens, helps us picture this exotic new place, which we'll have been expecting to hear more about ever since we saw it listed in the contents as the title of part three of this book. As Azriel rebuilt his fortune, Yorick accomplished the still more remarkable feat of making his own armor in Nova Zembla, he says. In line with the various ideas Lyra gets in this chapter, she muses here that he's made his own soul. So there is a great deal in the world to know. As much as the alethiometer can answer questions, we need to know what to ask it about. And this chapter seems to emphasize the contrasting process of gathering new ideas, wild, seemingly random thoughts. And it emphasizes the breadth rather than the depth of inquiry. Asking about the king of Svalbard, for instance, the name Jofor Ragnarsson shakes a little bell in Lyra's memory. She remembers it as a Jordan college voice who said it last, lazily arrogant, and ironically saying how proud and prone to flattery the Bear King was in turn. Though it's only now that she knows that he was describing a bear and not a human. And she can tell there was something else that he was saying, but she doesn't remember what it is. She doesn't read her instrument to find out, and probably we aren't really expected to exercise our power of rereading either at this point, but instead to stay caught in the story, even as the story itself teases us to look back and to read more. We hear what being imprisoned on Svalbard means for a nobleman like Lord Asriel. Sounds rather genteel, actually. But Lyra is still determined to free him, of course. She asks next about confronting the bears, or tricking them. He stopped gnawing and looked at her directly. Then he said, You will never defeat the armored bears. You have seen my armor. Now look at my weapons. He dropped the meat and held out his paws, palm upward, for her to look at. Each black pad was covered in horny skin an inch or more thick. Each of the claws was as long as Lyra's hand at least, and as sharp as a knife. He let her run her hands over them wonderingly. One blow will crush a seal's skull, he said, or break a man's back, or tear off a limb, and I can bite. If you had not stopped me in Charleston, I would have crushed that man's head like an egg. So much for strength. Now for trickery. You cannot trick a bear. You want to see proof? Take a stick and fence with me. Pullman confesses boldly, repeatedly, that he has taken this scene that follows straight from On the Marionette Theater by Heinrich von Kleist, a work little known in comparison to Milton or Blake, which has consequently become a good deal better known, at least among Pullman's readers. It's very short, it's easy to find if you look it up, so the best thing is to read it for yourself. You'll see, the fencing with the bear is only a small piece of that story, too, and that 
In transposing it here with the child rather than adult fencing partner for his bear, Pullman powerfully alludes to its read of Genesis, with which he seems to be in agreement. But he also adds some twists of his own. For example, Yorick Bunison sat back on his haunches and waited, four paws in his lap. When she was ready, she faced him, but she didn't like to stab at him because he looked so peaceable. That word peaceable I find noteworthy here. Could it recall the peaceable kingdom of Isaiah 12, uh, 11, uh, of which the serious play between these fencing partners gives us a little glimpse? Or liar's quip. Um, I bet you could catch bullets, she said, and threw the stick away. How do you do that? By not being human, he said. That's why you could never trick a bear. We see tricks and deceit as plain as arms and legs. We can see in a way humans have forgotten. But you know about this. You can understand the symbol reader. Um, her uh, joke, I bet you could catch bullets, is another of those borrowings from comic books, I think, that Pullman loves perpetrating just as much as he does ransacking high cultural artifacts. It's a joke which betrays how Lyra is afraid, too. It's like the Egyptians laughing nervously when she flared up at them. Spelling out the analogy about uh, reading this, the symbol reader, York says, um, Adults can't read it, as I understand. As I am to human fighters, so you are to adults with the symbol reader. Um, so, Lyra's last question is about growing up. Um, yes, I suppose, she said, puzzled and unwilling. Does that mean I'll forget how to do it when I grow up? <laughs> um, that, that also proves prescient. Once more, uh, after undoing them, she does her furs up again, and she doesn't have time to consult the alethiometer yet about all she's learned. She puts the decoys in their places, as I can't help but feel Pullman, stage manager, is doing also. So Lyra doesn't seem to feel bad about tricking Fartacorum uh, in this small way. Um, at any rate, we kind of gloss over that here, if she does. The plan to spy from the air gets reiterated. Um, naturally, Lyra was eager to fly with him, and naturally it was forbidden. But she rode with him on the way there and pestered him with questions. Um, our third main episode here gives us Lyra in her element again, talking to Lee for the first time in an extended way that we hear about anyway. And uh, his own colorful phrases give confirmation of what Yorick said about going to Svalbard. But then they pass on to Lee's speciality, gas, the many ways of finding or making it. It's not hard to make gas. And uh, balloon mechanics. Um, it's delightful stuff, which I'm very sorry to say doesn't make it into the otherwise unimpeachable book 
The Science of His Dark Materials by John and Mary Gribben. The upshot of all this gas is that carrying Yorick in the balloon would be physically possible, as Leah tests. Could you carry Yorick Bernison in his armor? I have done. I rescued him one time from the Tartars when he was cut off and they were starving him out. That was in the Tunguska campaign. I flew in and took him off. Sounds easy, but hell, I had to calculate the weight of that old boy by guesswork. And then I had to bank on finding ground gas under the ice fort he'd made. But I could see what kind of ground it was from the air, and I reckoned we'd be safe in digging. See, to go down, I have to let gas out of the balloon, and I can't get airborne again without more. Anyway, we made it, armor and all. Uh, great, great stuff. Um, so he alludes there to, uh, just by the name, anyway, to the, uh, the Tunguska event, as it's called in, uh, in our world. Um, kind of like when uh, Dr. Lancelius asked about Kamchatka, uh, we might have been familiar um, with that name, too, due to its featuring as a territory in the board game Risk. Anyway. Lyra asking about the Tartars making holes in their skulls to, well, whatever it is for, sets Lee off again. Uh, rather, not in their skulls. She assumes it's in the skulls of their enemies. It sets him off again, and, and to Lyra's surprise, um, he says it's a mark of privilege and not a byproduct of killing or scalping, but quite the contrary. This leads Lee to talk about it uh, in, describe it in anatomical detail, much as he had described deriving gas from the ground. Um, first, um, they cut partway around a circle of skin on the scalp so they can lift up a flap and expose the bone. Then they cut a little circle of bone out of the skull very carefully so they don't penetrate the brain, and then they sew the scalp back over. Makes me think, actually, of what Jorg Bernison's just done with the Spyfly tin, a little bit, at least. Um, of course, it's uh, Stanislaus Grumman that uh, Lyra's thinking of. But first here, we should note that, like the witches spoke of hearing whispers through the aurora, perhaps like Lyra's reading of the alethiometer, trepanning is a means of listening to the voices of beings we can't help but call divine, for lack of a better understanding. Now, Stanislaus Grumman, it turns out, was initiated into the tribes of the Yenisei River, that's next to Tunguska in central Russia, and he had the holes drilled into his skull then. As Lee goes on then, questioning Lyra's assumptions and those of the scholars in the retiring room, Lyra realizes it might not really have been Grumman whose head Lord Asriel showed them at all. So, if he was like an honorary Tartar, they wouldn't have killed him. Killed him? Is he dead then? Yeah, I saw his head, Lyra said proudly. My father found it. I saw it when he showed it to the scholars at Jordan College in Oxford. They'd scalped it and all. Who'd scalped it? Well, the Tartars. That's what the scholars thought. But maybe it wasn't. It might not have been Grimman's head, said Lee Scorsby. Your father might have been misleading the scholars. I suppose he might, said Lyra thoughtfully. He was asking them for money. And when they saw the head, 
they gave him the money. Yeah, good trick to play. People are shocked when they see a thing like that. They don't like to look too close. Especially scholars, said Lyra. I think this is extremely interesting stuff. Um, we see, for one thing, Lyra really engaged in the lesson, uh, an overt lesson. Um, but maybe that's not so surprising. We just saw her extremely engaged in the lesson she got from Yorick, too. Um, we, uh, we could also think of ourselves before the shocking sight of a boy with no demon and wonder what might be uh, concealed or, or at least happening elsewhere. Um, as Lyra puts it, or rather, as the narrator puts it, Lyra turned that over in her mind as they drove on. There were wide currents full of meaning flowing fast around her. Gobblers and their cruelty, their fear of dust, the city and the aurora, her father and Svalbard, her mother. And where was she? The alethiometer, the witches flying northward, and poor little Tony Makarios, and this clockwork spy-fi, and Yorick Birneson's uncanny fencing. These wide currents of new and old elements of the story and the absence of alethiometry to sift concrete answers from this flux, at least at this stage, again, make me want to read on. But how different in kind from the sharp pang of the prior chapter's cliffhanger. Though that too is, is encompassed in this block, broader flow. As a last point, I would say, that line, and where was she, could equally refer either to Lyra, figuratively, or to Mrs. Coulter, literally. It echoes, albeit less anguished, her cry, where's his fish? Which I can't help but hear echoing, however faintly, a formulation like, where's his faith? Something like that. Or, at a still more distant remove, Jesus' repetition of the psalm, Why have you forsaken me? I know that's a lot to chew on. So in recess today, let's play with just a few things for the imaginary video game adaptation. Consider, the path you take back to meet up with the Egyptians is not necessarily the same as the one that you take to get to the village. They'll have moved on in the meantime, and so, to catch up to them, you can go over the ridge at an angle. All the same sorts of obstacles will be there to tear through, but some of the fun might have gone out of it. With Lyra, you'll have the option to hug Tony to help him hold on, which is better to do not only for compassion's sake, but to keep him from tumbling off the bear from time to time. Pan will let you know as much if you decline to hold on to him. If you do hold on to him, Lyra's strength and Yorick's will get a considerable boost. Once you do catch up with the Egyptians, or if you overshoot them once you backtrack to meet them, Yorick will leave your party. And Tony will never actually be in it, but will remain inert and disconnected. If you can make the effort to remind the bear to tell John Fa about the witches you saw, it will unlock Pan's arctic fox sheep. The snow leopard that he assumes when you find they've taken Tony's bit of fish, will be only temporary, unless you did the side quest back in, George, uh, in Oxford to, to unlock it for him. 
the response that you have to Tony's death is up to you, but going to give him the demon coin will result in a big upgrade to Pan's energy, which will come in handy during the escape from Bolvanger. Overhearing the discussion about the balloon, similarly, you'll have the option whether to go talk directly to Lee or to visit Yorick first for this business about the spy flight container. Um, since I don't see how the player could know to do that first without having read the book, um, there could be some more overt hints from Pan that'll be given here. Maybe thinking about the golden monkey, uh, maybe the shape he saw in the woods uh, to help kind of jog your memory to think about wanting to make sure that you have a decoy in place if he comes sneaking around again like he used to do. Uh, the impression of having heard about Yofor Rackneson before, uh, the idea about the witches pulling the balloon, spoiler, uh, will have to be rendered visually, I think, as sorts of flashbacks, as, uh, as well as um, maybe there will be portions of gameplay which will accompany Yorick's and Lee's stories in this part. And this will give the player a chance to practice bearish combat for yourself in preparation for the Mortal Kombat chapter later. And to practice flying the balloon and shooting firearms as Lee in preparation for those episodes. And just for fun. And if you make a mistake, the speaker, who's telling the story, can simply cut in with something like, no, that wasn't how it happened. And then that'll give you another chance at practicing the embedded tutorial. As in the book, Lyra won't be able to access the alethiometer during this chapter. If you try, a uh, panel interjects something like it's too cold or that she needs to go and talk to so-and-so right now. And between the various bits of story and the fencing minigame, of course, with Yorick, which is like a test of timing and reactions, like the quick-draw rooms in the original Kirby for the NES, only this one's impossible to win. And that's meant to be a little exasperating, a little frightening. It should prove to be one of the more action-filled chapters so far. And uh, the next one should be two uh, when we come to it. Till then, take care.